Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Good to see you guys. Howdy. Hey, Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Author Olga Kazan is our guest. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the digital ad wars. Last year, Google, Facebook, and Amazon took in more than 60% of all digital ad spending in the US. But this year, Google is expected to see a drop in its ad revenue for the first time in more than a decade. This is according to a report by eMarketer, a research firm that's been tracking ad spending since 2008. And Jason, I'll just start with you. Google's expected to bounce back in 2021. But in the near term, they are giving up market share to their two biggest competitors. Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly a projection. I mean now now if that actually ends up being the case, I mean I guess we have to wait and see there. It, it, it does make sense to a degree though. I mean when you're the king of the hill for so long, I mean you kind of unfortunately have nowhere nowhere to go but down at some point or another. And this has obviously been a unique circumstance for for all advertisers. Um, I, I think it was interesting that this projection was made, taking into consideration you know the challenge that Facebook is dealing with right now in this growing uh, boycott of Facebook platforms just based on what they're allowing on their on their platform and, and uh, fact checking and, and whatnot. We're seeing more brands. Step up and actually, you know, join this boycott of advertising on Facebook platforms. Now, now, how long that ultimately lasts is anyone's guess. I mean, I suspect at some point or another, you know, listen, money talks, right? So it, it, that probably will dictate mm-hmm. some of Facebook's policy going forward. But I, I, I think you do make a good point there. Longer haul. I mean, this is this is something that Google will. Uh, this is not this is not something that's indicative of, of a of a dwindling platform or a platform losing relevance. Let's remember they have nine different platforms, nine different services that have uh, one billion or more users each. And, and given the utility of all of the services that Google and Alphabet offer, I tend to feel like that's going to help them come through uh, this relatively unscathed. But in the near term, there are some question marks, no doubt. And Chris, I think this is this is um, points a little bit to where Google, uh, the types of clients that Google uses and Alphabet uses across their platform. You said 60%. That still means there's 40% of uh, the revenue pie out there. So the benefits that hopefully could benefit companies like the Trade Desk and Roku, Rubicon, advertising platforms that are helping um, other publishers, other connected TV um, advertisers reach uh, audiences in ways that they couldn't do before. Um, so maybe it opens up a little bit of a more of a of an opportunity for those companies, but I think it speaks a little bit more towards the some of the struggles that the larger Google clients like um, you know Booking.com or, or the travel companies or or maybe some of the finance companies uh, find themselves in with the the COVID lockdown. Yeah, and I'm glad Andy mentioned the travel there because I mean you, you do see Facebook and Google. I mean they certainly benefit a lot from travel and restaurants, um, things of that nature. Look towards the smaller. Players in this space. I mean, this this collective of companies like Twitter and Snap and Pinterest. And Pinterest even noted in their in their latest call that 
you know, some of the areas, some of the most impacted verticals in, in the ad space, like travel and automotive and restaurants, they were significantly impacted. But for Pinterest itself, they're relatively small exposure. That's not that's not really the lion's share of, of the ad spending on Pinterest platforms. So they're going to be a little bit more immune to that. Now, that's not to say that Pinterest is is you know something that that the folks at Alphabet or Facebook need to keep in the rearview mirror. I mean, there's there's clearly a, a big size difference there, but it just does go to show that that there are some platforms that cater to certain advertising markets uh, better than others. And it, and it seems like, at least in this case, Pinterest might be a little bit immune to some of that drop, whereas Facebook and Google clearly going to be very exposed to things like travel and restaurants. And those are the two industries that have really been impacted the most here in this, in this uh, shutdown and in, in, in subsequent slow reopening. Amazon stock hit a new all-time high this week. And the company apparently celebrated by buying Zooks, a self-driving startup company. Uh, they're paying just over a billion dollars, Andy, and obviously they can afford it. Does this does this make sense for Amazon? Yeah, I think it does, Chris. So uh, you mentioned Amazon has this budding um, advertising business, but we know that's a small part of their business, and, and really the commerce side is much bigger. So um, they are buying Zooks. Uh, they didn't disclose the price. There were some reports that it's about one point two billion dollars. Um, that's one and a half more than they spent for Kiva Systems, which is the robotics company, the warehouse robotics company they bought in two thousand and twelve. Amazon doesn't make very big acquisitions, Chris. They tend to make these right around the one billion. Minus the Whole Foods acquisition for about 14 billion, which was by far, I think, their biggest one. Um, Jeff Wilk, the Amazon Worldwide Consumer Director, in the press release said that Zooks is working to imagine, invent, and design a world-class autonomous ride-hailing experience. And that is something when you think about distribution platforms, you think about the massive logistics network that Amazon has to manage and run, and is becoming so sophisticated in that, especially using technology. Something like Zooks that is right now um, they're struggling a little bit. They were valued at more than maybe three billion um, a couple of years ago, and they've kind of had some struggles. Their one of their founders left, um, and they had some some they've had some struggles with with Tesla on the IP um, acquisition front of um, some. some employees who left Zooks to go to Tesla. Um, so, they're struggling a little bit. Now, Amazon comes in with this massive opportunity for them to invest into for Zooks to take their technology and invest into the Amazon platform. So, for Amazon, such a small um, little bet into a massive opportunity for them. Shares of McCormick hit a new all-time high this week after second quarter profits for the spice maker came in much higher than expected. And Jason, with the rise in cooking at home, I can't imagine you're surprised by this. <laughs> Not terribly. I mean, this this was another impressive quarter for McCormick this go around, and I think you know we're seeing that the company's diverse customer base really helps it weather the storm during times like these. Actually, flourish in some cases. So you could see weakness in one area of the business actually made up for with strength in another. Um, I, I was really impressed. I mean, ten percent sales growth for a company like this over the quarter. They've chalked up five percent annualized growth over the last five years. So that was significant, and and it's really because the obvious suspect, right? More people are cooking at home. Uh, they're seeing organic searches to McCormick.com up over 200% versus a 
year ago. Uh, you know, I've told you about that Flavor Maker app, right, Chris? I mean, this thing is pretty amazing. You can actually scan your McCormick spices that are in your cabinet into your phone, so you've got a virtual spice cabinet now. So when you're at the store, you never have to ask your question of, "Do I still have that garlic powder? I- am I out of oregano?" Uh, you know, so they're they're attacking the tech side too, and and. Again, to the diversity of the business model, there are the flavor solutions, which is that food service and packaged foods, restaurants, and whatnot. It's around 40% of revenue, 30% of operating profit. They're feeling a little weakness on the food service side of the business, clearly making up for it in the stores with consumers. I think that as we get down the road here and we see Restaurants start to open back up. They're seeing the trend, especially in quick service restaurants. Uh, that traffic is starting to pick back up. So I imagine you take some of that strength over these past few quarters in the home. Some of that strength may go back into the bucket of the flavor solution side of the business. But any which way you cut it, that's the beauty of it. It's a diverse, strong setup business here with, with a lot of different brands in the portfolio. And, and I suspect we'll see them add a few more here as time goes on. I'm going to burst your bubble just a little bit because oh, come you've, been, on. you've been saying for years that McCormick is one of those businesses that is a Warren Buffett type of business. And when we talk about the huge amount of cash that Berkshire Hathaway has on their balance sheet, what can they go out and buy? For years now, you've put forth McCormick like, look, this is, and I'm not saying you're wrong. But what I am saying is that this is now a $24 billion company. Yeah. Buffett's not buying McCormick at this price. He's obviously either not listening to Motley Fool Money or he's just he's just throwing my advice to the side there. You know, I I can't figure that out. What what in the world does Heinz have that McCormick does? What craft? Give me a break. I mean, listen, you want to talk about steady Eddie. McCormick is your business. Mr. Buffett, please, it's still not out of the realm of possibility. Fire that elephant gun if you want. Hey, let it go on its own. I don't mind hanging on to my shares and just letting that dividend aristocrat keep paying me for owning. Nike is one of the strongest brands in apparel retail, but even that couldn't prevent Nike from posting a loss in the fourth quarter. Overall revenue fell 38%, and Andy, their margins are taking a hit too. Yeah, they're at like 20 year lows, I think, on the gross margin side. So um, I guess we couldn't expect, uh, couldn't be too surprised by this kind of quarter. They, they had talked in the last quarter how they were kind of like foreseeing this because of their experience in China. And they kind of had a plan on how to go about like thinking about reopening stores. Um, uh, about 90% of all the stores outside of China, Chris, were closed for eight weeks during the quarter. By the way, this quarter goes March, April, May. So this is really in the heart of the of the of the lockdown. So revenues in the US were down 46%, down 44% in Europe, a little uptick in China. And then the earnings and the gross margins, inventories exploded more than 30% as the wholesale business really shut down. But what was really interesting, and this is, gets back to what Jason was saying is with McCormick, is like we've seen with Starbucks, like we've seen with Walmart, Nike is making an investment, a huge investment in technology. John Donahue, who comes from Bain and came over from sales, uh, from from um, from ServiceNow, has a real technology edge. He says the digital sales, simply put, we will be more aggressively leveraging technology to make to make Nike better. Their digital sales were up 75% for the quarter. That's versus up 49, 47% for the entire fiscal year. Um, 30% of all sales now are tied to their digital ecosystem. System. Um, they expect that to go to 50% eventually in a couple of years. That's way ahead of schedule. So they are making this investment in digital into their applications, into their entire sales experience in a very aggressive manner. And that's really the future for Nike. 
Nike's stock down about 5% on Friday after this report. I get the concern, but I also have a hard time believing that Nike's not going to work their way out of this. I, I agree. You actually, there's, there's experiences where Nike has hit these road bumps. Nothing like this we've seen, but they've hit these bumps with either the inventory management, brands, um, some PR um, challenges they've had. Um, obviously, they've been tied into a lot of the um, social justice initiatives recently. They're making a lot of investments into that, into that, in that regard. Um, long term, talk about your kind of like long term compound grower that Nike is. It's an awfully large company right now, but think about the growth and the potential and the execution. And with John Donahue at the lead, I really like what he's going to bring to Nike. Um, here. And so, if you're looking to buy a stock on a little bit of a dip, Nike's a good one to go with. I'd love to say we have a hot IPO to talk about. Coming up, can we interest you in a lukewarm IPO? Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Shares of Darden Restaurants up this week, the parent company of Capital Grill, Longhorn Steakhouse, and of course Olive Garden, wrapped up the fiscal year with a loss in the fourth quarter that really wasn't quite as bad as Wall Street was expecting. Jason, no, it wasn't. You know, I'm not I'm not an investor in Darden, but it's clear to see that leading up to this year, shareholders of the last five years have been feeling really good about things. I mean, all things considered, I think the company has managed their way through this crisis pretty well. Part of the diversity is in their offerings. Um, but I, I tell you, when you go through that call, the earnings call, there was a real sense that management is playing offense here. I mean, they are not in a state of defense. And when you look at some of the numbers, I mean, 91% of their dine-in restaurants have reopened with some capacity. Now, this is mostly an Olive Garden and Longhorn story, right? They're the gist of the business. But go-to sales remain elevated. Uh, when you look at Olive, to, uh, Olive Garden to-go sales, approximately double pre-COVID averages. Longhorn more than triple. Um, the one thing management kept going back to was this competitive advantage in scale, right? They see scale as this massive advantage, and going forward, they see it, 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 they see this uh, landscape with fewer restaurants. They feel like they have this opportunity to get in their open restaurants, even in a time of uncertainty, just to, just to get that footprint in there and gain that share. And I think, ultimately, that probably will serve them pretty well, because they are able to utilize that to-go model until things get back to normal. They're doing a smart job keeping cash conserved. They've suspended the dividend. They will not restore it until they see fit. But you know, the plan to open 35 to 40 new stores here for this coming year, they feel really good about it. So, I mean, like I said, management seems to be playing offense, and that could work out really well for them. I sort of did a double take when I saw that uh, plan to open that many new locations. But given what we've seen in terms of other restaurants really struggling, it, it may be an opportunity for them to pick up some real estate on the cheap. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Again, I mean, I think this really does all go back to the fact that they're as big as they are now, they're as diverse as they are now, and then they look at this restaurant landscape, which is already so difficult, really, to manage in good times. They see that scale and their resources and their expertise as a real advantage here. So I think they're trying to double down on that and, and you know, get that market share while it's still out there and available. Albertsons, the operator of various supermarket brands across America, went public on Friday. The stock was initially priced in the range of $18 to $20, but went public at $16. That's basically where it stayed on Friday. Andy, if ever a supermarket was going to do well in an IPO, I felt like this was the time. 
Well, Chris, and their business is doing well. In March and sale, March and April, their sales were up 34% over last year. So obviously, a lot of momentum going in there. Um, th- this is one that I'm not touching. Um, Cerebrus, uh, which is a um, uh, venture capital private equity firm, um, bought it um, years ago, and now is trying to get out of their their shares, trying to cash out of their uh, part of their holding. Their hold, they will still hold about 30% north of 30% of the shares um, going forward. After this, the company is not actually going to benefit. Benefit from the sale of the shares, they will all go to, to be able to provide liquidity for the private equity firm. So, I mean, you think about Safeway, it owns, or I'm sorry, Albertsons owns Albertsons, Safeway, Vons, Jewel Osco, a few other. They have a meal, um, a meal kit company as well, too. But Obviously, uh, some concerns about the long-term um, viability of the of the grocery stores. It's very razor-thin margin. The amount of debt they're carrying is still extensive. They have more than eight billion dollars of just long-term debt, um, so it's probably about um, half their capital base. So it's highly leveraged. It's thin margins. Long-term growth prospects, very competitive business. It's still a very hard uh, investment for me to get my hands around. Obviously, right now things are being pretty, are looking very good with the restaurant business, but it won't always be like that. Well, and it's also interesting to see that the IPO market is opening back up again. I mean, uh, you go back a couple of months. I thought we were done with IPOs for the year. I mean, this Albertsons isn't doing well, but you know, between this and some of the reports we've heard about Airbnb maybe getting back into it. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the second half of the year. Yeah, I think it's starting to ramp up. I, I think there were uh, talks about um, Peter Thiel's Palantir going, um, maybe looking at an IPO. So um, it definitely shut down, rightly so, in the last couple of months. But it's it's, uh, it's it's warming back up, Chris. There is a name at the intersection of restaurants and entertainment, a name <laughs> known to tens of millions of parents across America. I'm referring, of course, to the name Chuck E. Cheese. This week, Chuck E. Cheese filed for bankruptcy. Apollo Global Management is the PE firm that owns Chuck E. Cheese. Um, this is a private equity firm that says they're fielding offers. Either one of you guys want to buy Chuck E. Cheese just for the sake of nostalgia <laughs> or maybe your own real estate play? I'm, I'm going to have to take a big fat pass on that one, Chris. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to set foot in in one of those restaurants in the the healthiest of times, pre-COVID days. Going forward, I think the hurdle is. Just, I mean, the hurdle's gotten higher for every restaurant, but but for Chuck E. Cheese, it's 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 higher by a factor of ten. Uh, I mean, it's it's just a really difficult place to manage to keep clean. I mean, it, it's seemingly a great place for kids to go have fun, but as a parent. Man, it's just, it's a miserable experience. I just don't understand how this thing has made it this far, but hey, maybe someone out there knows something I don't. Chances are good that's the case. And just the commercial real estate space in general is going to be a very tough place to, for investors, I think, going forward. Yeah. Andy Cross, Jason Moser, guys, we'll see you later in the show. How can outsiders thrive in an insider world? We will talk about that and more with our guest, Olga Kazan. That's next. This is Motley Fool Money. Joe's and burritos in a bag. Friday was pizza day, the best day of the week. All the kids would line up super early just to eat. Monday hot dog Tuesday. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Recently, I got the chance to talk with Olga Kazan, an award-winning writer at The Atlantic. She's out with her first book, entitled Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. It is a topic that is close to Olga's heart because, well, she's always felt like she was different from those around her. 
starting when she was a little girl, and her family moved from Russia to Midland, Texas. That was definitely the first time I realized that I, I am different and that I didn't have any natural kind of commonalities with the people around me, you know, and that that really persisted my entire childhood. Um, but the book isn't just about kids who feel different. It's really about people who feel different at different points in their in their life. And in fact, most of the people that I interviewed are adults who just happen to have a different gender or gender identity or political orientation or um, religious uh, views than people who surround them. And so they are fish out of water. And even though I'm not maybe as fish out of watery in Washington, D.C. as I was in Midland, to me, this is a message that really resonates. And of course, the things that happen to you in childhood stay with you. So, um, you know, those experiences of being very different from everyone around me definitely colored the rest of my adult life, even though it wasn't as extreme as it was when I was a child. Well, and one of the things you get to in the book that I think applies to the business world in a really wonderful way is almost this sense that we need weird people. We like we need the weirdos because they're the ones who are pushing the boundaries. And you know, especially when it comes to creativity, like that's that just seems like something that comes up over and over in your book. Just sort of the people who are weird or outsiders and think differently about the world. They're usually the ones in the conference room who are going to come at the problem in a different way. That's exactly right. Um, one of the most poignant uh, examples of this in the book that I um, that I write about is this experiment that was done by these professors at Johns Hopkins, where they uh, invited these volunteers into a lab, and then they told half of them that they were rejected. They were not picked to work as part of the group. Um, so they made them feel kind of like outsiders or kind of not, not fitting in. And then they had everyone uh, draw aliens that were from a planet not like our own. So try to draw an alien that's from a totally different planet. And it turned out that the weirdos, the the rejected people, they drew more creative aliens as rated by this kind of separate panel. So while the kind of included participants drew Martians, you know, like Marvin the Martian, who is kind of a traditional looking what you would think of as an alien, the rejected participants drew aliens that look completely different than that kind of standard look. So they had maybe all of their appendages sticking out of one side of their body or or they had kind of uh, their eyes below their feet or something like that. So you can really see, and this is something that's um, kind of been shown, not just in lab experiments, but in real life, how kind of being different or not being immediately accepted by your group can lead to creativity. Well, and another thing you write about is uh, the theory called Solomon's Paradox. Um, I, I was reading a, a study recently about um, people who have home improvement projects and how um, basically, they always think that someone else's home improvement project is going to take more time than they're told, and it's going to cost more money. But when it comes to their own home improvement projects, they think, oh, no, this is going to be fine. This is going to be you know, under budget. This is going to be on time. And Solomon's Paradox is, is really sort of you know, flipping that about how, like, in a way, people are better at solving other people's problems. So it's almost like to the extent possible, you have to have an outsider's perspective to help yourself. 
Yeah. So this is um, from part of the book where I talk about strategies to deal with this feeling of being different or not being included or just not having a lot of friends. It's where I talk about how to think about your problems in a in a new way or to, to um, kind of reconfigure your own experience in your head um, so that the story that you're telling yourself is not as negative. So yeah, you're right that there, there's a lot of research that shows that thinking about your problems from a third person perspective can help you make a better decision or just kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel where you weren't able to before. It could be as simple as instead of saying like, I need to decide what to do, say to yourself, like Olga needs to decide what she's going to do. And this can be really helpful in a number of experiences. I write about it as applied to people who had a big crisis in their lives because they were different and they felt this like extreme alienation from other people around them. But you could also use this if you're like deciding between two different jobs or two different places to live or, you know, something else where you have to kind of give yourself advice. And and the best way to think of it really is as you're giving yourself advice um, because people tend to provide better advice when they think of themselves as like a different person because it, it just helps remove you from that immediate situation that you're too close to. One of the things that I want to get to in a few minutes is sort of your thinking on the, on the current environment for businesses and in particular for offices, um, which before the pandemic, uh, people actually used to get together in offices and, uh, and work in the same place at the same time. Uh, um, but one of the things you get at the book is sort of outsiders coming into an office and sort of that, I don't want to call it a tightrope, but although for some people it might be, but sort of the balance that some of the people that you write about try to strike between maintaining their individuality, um, but also wanting to feel accepted at a workplace. Yeah, totally. This is a, a quandary that a lot of the people that I interviewed ran into. So um, one really poignant example of this was a very liberal professor who teaches gender studies at this uh, university in the most conservative politically uh, congressional district in America, which is Wichita Falls, Texas, or the area surrounding it. So this professor was there and she was like kind of trying to teach her gender studies class. And it was really difficult because everything she brought up, she would be like, feminism, let me tell you all about it. And the kids would be like, that's not a real thing. Or, you know, they would respond to her with teachings from the Bible. And this was also kind of the early years. This was, you know, a couple decades ago. So people weren't as like, quote unquote, woke as they maybe are now. And so she was really struggling. So what she used is this strategy called idiosyncrasy credits that a lot of social scientists recommend, which is where you kind of conform at first, and then you kind of let loose your weirdness or your nonconformity. So you start off with kind of agreeing to things that maybe don't matter to you as much or that it's kind of small potatoes to you to just go along with it. So let's say I started a new job and I have a really uh, interesting idea for a project uh, in six months. Maybe right now I, you know, kind of play along with whatever everyone else says. So whatever their ideas are, I'm sort of like, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. And then six months go, goes by and I've kind of formed myself, created myself as this insider. I've, I've made myself seem like I totally can conform with whatever the office wants to do. 
people trust me more. So they want to follow me. They want to let me uh, let loose my ideas. So at that point I might say, Hey, you know what? I have this like really great idea for this special project and uh, people are more likely to buy it because they already see me as one of them instead of someone who's kind of an interloper coming in. So similarly, this professor that I interviewed, what she would do is she would start out with topics that are not as threatening. So she would start out by talking about masculinity, for example, which is something that a lot of the men, you know, kind of like conservative leaning men in her class might embrace a little bit better than like the glass ceiling. And then she would kind of like, once she kind of established some buy-in and got them to understand a little bit where she was coming from, she would kind of slowly ease her way into some of the more challenging topics in gender studies. So that's one way she was able to use idiosyncrasy credits to, in order to present her ideas that were very kind of challenging to the norms of this environment. Well, and one of the examples that you use with idiosyncrasy credits involves the Beatles, which I, I, I feel like I know a decent amount about the Beatles, um, but I had never thought of them through this lens before. And sort of the math that you cite regarding uh, their catalog of music was pretty eye-opening. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up the exact stat. But so the Beatles used this because they were actually a very raucous and like not very polished band when they were first starting out. They actually had to like get that clean look that sort of the matching haircuts and the blazers and everything else that they wore that had to be sort of cultivated by their manager because they were having trouble getting a record deal and and um, selling records because they were seen as like not very clean cut um, so their manager kind of created this clean cut image for them um, that they played along with for quite a while so um, this analysis found that 91 percent of their songs before 1966 consisted of love songs these are songs like the love me do i want to hold your hand uh, songs like that, that were sort of what you think of as like classic Beatles from Beatlemania. Then kind of as they got more famous, they started using these idiosyncrasy credits that they had built up. Um, so they started to deviate from these kind of this clean cut image. They started to grow out their hair long, use lots of drugs. <laughs> they started to wear kind of like hippie outfits. Um, their songs got really weird. I use as an example, this song called Revolution 9 from the White Album, which is an eight minute sound collage whose only lyrics are the words number nine. So they really started getting weird. Like they, they got really unusual because they knew that their fans could handle it. They knew that they had built up all these idiosyncrasy credits and now they're going to spend them by creating whatever kind of weird music they wanted. And indeed, after 1966, just 16% of their songs were love songs. I knew they were making less love songs. I just didn't realize the math was that one-sided. Yes. Um, <laughs> You interviewed a lot of people for this book, and I, I don't want to ask you the journalist equivalent of asking a parent which one is your favorite child, but when you think about the people you interviewed and that you met as a result of this book, is there one that stands out uh, for one reason or another? Is there a particularly memorable person you got to connect with? Yeah, I mean, they're also um, memorable for different reasons, and I had so much fun interviewing all of them. I interviewed more than three dozen people to find some of the similar, like, similarities between all these people who are different. One that I really enjoyed getting to know and that I am honestly just really um, in awe of is this woman, Emma, 
who escaped from an Amish community when she was a teenager. And she just, what she went through is so incredible. She basically had never used any kind of technology. She just took off her bonnet one day and walked out of her family's farmhouse, called someone on a phone that she had never used before and like arranged a ride uh, to outside of the community and um, made it down to Texas, got her GED, uh, taught herself English. They spoke Pennsylvania Dutch in her um, community, learned about modern society, learned how to drive, learned how to work, learned um, about the internet, started using the internet, went to college, got her college degree, got her master's degree, um, now works in like a normal office job, in uh, lives in an apartment on her own in a suburb of Dallas. And I was just so impressed by that because it's not even like immigrating. It's like coming from a different world, like time traveling into our modern society and just having to learn all those norms and learn how to function in a, in a, you know, what, what we think of as modern American society, given no background in that, um, it just struck me as such a gutsy and ballsy thing to do. I was just really inspired by her and, um, I really enjoyed hearing her story. Your book is dedicated, as you write, to my parents, the original weirdos. What's one or two things you could share about the weirdness of your parents that they would uh, be okay with you sharing? Yeah, well, this is in the book, but um, when I was in high school, my house got toilet papered, um, and my dad, who's very frugal, decided to take all the toilet paper down from the trees and put it in a bag that he kept in his bathroom and then used as his own personal stash of toilet paper. And he was very pleased to get free toilet paper from our neighbors. He was um, a man ahead of his time. I would love for someone to toilet paper my house right now. I know, right, right. He was just getting ready. Yeah, yeah. My mom really does not like me talking about her publicly, so I'm not going to. <laughs> the book is Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. You can find it everywhere you find books. If you're looking for more stock ideas, you're in luck. Radar Stocks is next, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. When you were here before, look you in the eye. You're just like an As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. On Friday, Microsoft announced it is permanently closing almost all of its physical stores across America and around the world. Microsoft has more than 80 stores, and shutting them down is going to cost an estimated $450 million. Uh, Andy, let me start with you. Um, on the surface, this seems like a good move. I mean, we've sort of joked for years about Microsoft uh, trying to do what Apple is doing with retail locations. But, you know, part of me wonders um, when you think about the Xbox gaming system if there isn't a place for Microsoft in the physical retail world. 
Yeah, Chris, I was a little bit surprised by this. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's nearly as profitable nor um, valuable to them as, as the likes of Apple uh, and what Apple has done, um, which is on, the, on the sales per square foot, Apple is just a clear leader. Um, but still, they, Microsoft does have a little bit that has this consumer business and consumer facing business. And now they are going to use, they're going to use those employees to be able to continue to support their, their, their clients in, I think, good ways. But I was a little surprised by this. Microsoft has about 15 billion dollars on the balance sheet of long-term leases. I don't know how much of that is tied to their stores. Um, like you mentioned, a small little charge for a company that has north of $130 billion on the balance sheet. Um, the charge is just practically nothing. It's much more about what this says about how Microsoft thinks its customers buy its products and where they engage with them the most. Let's get to the stocks on our radar, and our man Dan Boyd is going to hit you with a question. Uh, Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Sure, taking a look at Etsy, ticker ETSY. Stock has had a phenomenal year so far, up over 130%. And, and I understand why. Uh, they have a network with 47.7 million total active buyers, 2.8 million total active sellers. So it's a very attractive two-sided network there. And, and, and it's a network, really. That's the beauty of it. It's not maintaining these uh, massive inventory levels that, that typical retailers have to deal with. And, and we've seen, certainly, Etsy has been a, a resource here during this uh, during the times of COVID-19 and, and uh, the mask sales that they've lobbed up there. And I think that just goes to show how quickly sellers can pivot and, and uh, utilize that platform. Very strong financials, growing profits, free cash flow, all that great stuff. Uh, and then the headline that really came out over this past week which I found fascinating, is that they, too, are now incorporating augmented reality into their app so that you'll actually be able to use it to, to see how paintings and photography and prints might look in your home. And, and as time goes on, they'll continue to roll that out towards more uh, listings. And I think that's a great way to engage your customer for clearly a business that's already been doing uh, a lot of things well. It's a stock that I own personally, one that my daughters own. Uh, it's one that I think a lot of people should own, really. And, and I'm not surprised at it, at it having such a good year so far. Dan Boyd, question about Etsy? Certainly, Chris. So, Etsy is a terrifying business to me because every time I see that my wife is looking at it, I know that we're about to be out quite a bit of money. But, Jason, <laughs> the question I have for you is how hard was it to not choose McCormack as your radar stock today? Well, you know, it was it was easy because I knew that I was already going to be able to talk about McCormick during the regular show, and so I didn't really need to double dip there. I figured listeners they wouldn't like that, they wouldn't like me for it. They think I being they think I was being lazy. So so it was actually a pretty easy call, Dan. I don't I don't want to offend our listeners. Andy Cross, what are you looking at? Dan, I got Hulihan Loki, uh, symbol HLI. It's a boutique investment banking and consultation services firm. It really specializes in small and mid-market companies, uh, corporate finance, financial restructurings, and financial advice. The restructuring part is what's really interesting because the CEO recently said new restructuring engagement activity is running at almost double our recent monthly run rate. They're one of the leaders when they deal with these small markets and the small customers. So, I like Hulihan Loki, pays a little dividend, stock's done very well, and we own it in one of our services. Dan? I don't really have a question here, Chris. I just want to thank Andy for thinking about stocks like this because the term financial restructuring makes my eyes glaze over. 
<laughs> Two tough options, Dan. You got a stock you want to add to your watch list? Like I said earlier, Etsy absolutely terrifies me. That probably means it's a good business. I'm going with Etsy. <laughs> I like that logic. All right, Jason Moser, Andy Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.